When I uh, graduated from college uh, and went to then went to seminary, uh, we were in during the time I was in seminary. I started looking at you know, when you enter, you apply, and people look at your application, and then they decide, okay, which are you eligible for any scholarships so that this can make your your school schooling easier on you know the financial burden any easier. And there's a couple that I was eligible for, but then as we went through uh, time in seminary, I looked over some of them some more, and I looked, and one of the scholarships had a certain GPA uh, that w you, it was necessary for you to like get that scholarship, and I was just a few percent, like a couple points away from having that, being able to just get that scholarship because of my GPA level, and it was kind of like, oh, if I had just tried a little harder in college, which, you know, in college it was like there was, I wasn't like the, you know, like a student that was like, I'm just going to get like a 4.0 and like these classes matter so much. It was like some classes that were part of my major is like, I'm really interested in these classes, so I'm going to try super hard and this is what I love to do. But in other classes that were kind of like the gen eds, they're like, eh, I'm going to, I'm okay with like a B and, or like if, you know, if it's easy enough, I'll get like an A, but it was like, eh, I'm not like super interested in these, so I'm not going to try hard, but it's like, oh, if I would have just tried harder in some of these general classes, like, I could have gotten this much more money towards my seminary education, and I could have paid a lot less, and it's kind of like, this me not trying harder in these classes, I could have gotten more money, and now it's coming back to bite me because, oh, I could have just had a, just a little bit better GPA, and so I just fell short by just this little bit, and now it's coming back to bite me, and I fell short. But that feeling, you know, happens a lot of times in life. I just fell short by this much, or I fell short of this thing, or I fell short of this. And so what does that feel like to fall short of something? What does it feel like to fall short of reaching a goal that you set for yourself, like losing a certain amount of weight by a certain amount of time? Or what does it feel like to fall short of raising a specific amount of money, like you're trying to save this amount of money, for this thing, or I want to buy this car, or I want to get this project, or I want to do this thing. Or what does it feel like to fall short of getting a project done? Maybe it's a personal project or something you're trying to do at work. I just fell short of it. What does it feel like to fall short of that? What does it feel like to fall short of a deadline that someone set for you? Maybe it's someone at work, or maybe it's just a spouse or a friend. Like, I want you to get this to me by this time. Or maybe you promised some, you, somebody you do something and you fall short of that promise. Maybe a, or maybe a teacher's deadline. Maybe you're taking classes, or remember you remember in college or in high school or something like. I fell short of this, and this is how I was reprimanded for that. What does it feel like to fall short of expectations somebody had for you? How do people react when you fall short of expectations they had for you or desires they had for you? And then you know, ask yourself, how do you react when you fall? You know, how does it feel to fall short of something, and then how do you react when you fall short? of something. What do you feel? Do you feel angry? Do you feel sad? Do you feel ashamed? Do you feel scared? And how do you feel about yourself? Do you feel worthless? Do you feel like, man, I'm just a pile of trash. I'm just worthless. I'm not good for anything. Or do you feel motivated? Like, I fell short and that's not going to happen again. Now I'm motivated to never feel this way again. Or never to let that person down. Or never let myself down. Or do you feel despair? Like, I just can never... I'm just never going to be able to make it. I'm not, I can never do things right. I might as well not even try anymore. What do you do when you fall short of something? We're in 
our ninth week of this good news series, thinking about, well, our world has changed, but who God is and who we are because of Him hasn't. There's the good news of, that tells us this is who God is, and this is what He's done, and now this is who you are as a result. And that has not changed, even though everything in our world has changed. We're in a global pandemic, and all the racial inequality discussions and turmoil and riots and um, everything that's happening with that. And now we're in an election year that is, uh, seems very uh, intense. But this week, we finished the 4Gs theme of this series. Now we're beginning a new theme covering uh, what we've been saved from. It's a three-week theme, and then we're going to be done with this series. And there's a bit of a grammar lesson in this, uh, because if you think about our salvation, mm-hmm. you think like, okay, I've trusted in Jesus, so uh, I am saved. And yes, there's a, that's, that's true. There's a, a, a past tense to our salvation, but there's also a present tense, and there's also a future tense. So in one sense, I, yes, I'm saved, but also, no, I am not saved yet, because there's a, a future tense to it as well. So if you remember uh, your, your grammar lessons in school, past, present, future, how do you say, you know, the word uh, save, to save, uh, the verb to save in past, present, and future? Um, so it would be past tense, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. Present tense, we are being saved from the power of sin. And future tense would be, we will be saved from the presence of sin. So the three things are penalty, power, presence. And past, we've been, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. In the present, we are being saved from the power of sin. It's losing its grip on our lives. And in the future, we will be saved from the presence of sin. Sin will no longer have a presence in our lives. Right now, it has a presence, presence in our lives, but it's losing its grip on us. We're being saved from the power of it. But the penalty of it is a past thing. It, we no longer are under its penalty. So salvation is past, present, and future. We have been saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. And today we're going to be looking at salvation as a past event. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. You no longer live under the penalty of sin if you've trusted in Jesus. And the passage we're hearing from is Romans 3:21 through 26. But uh, Romans 3:21 through 26 it starts with this uh, "but now." And if you remember last week's passage, it started with "but God" or it had "but God" right in the middle of it. And we this passage starts with "but now," and that means you know okay something before it has been described. And there's this "but now." You know if you were reading a children's book or any sort of book and you hear a oh you, "but now" and you're like wait 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 okay, okay something crazy has happened before this, and now there's a, something dramatic is about to happen, and I'm not going to get what's about to happen, because, uh, you know, you know, if you're watching The Office, and all of a sudden, it's, oh, but now Jim and Pam are married, you'd be like, wait, who cares? Who are Jim and Pam? Uh, you, you've missed, you know, several seasons, because you don't care about who they are, uh, and if you, and you totally don't get what I just said, that, that just proves my point, so uh, you don't know what that even means. So we have to know, Romans 3, 21 through 26, is like someone yelling out, uh, the answer is the righteousness of God that has been manifested apart from the law, the righteousness of God uh, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, and so on. And then we're like, uh, the answer to what? I didn't know there was a problem. Why? Why? That's the answer. Why is this a? What is this solving? I don't get it. Or you know, it's like a, a doctor coming up to us and saying, "Good news, you're healed." But you're like, uh, I didn't know I was sick. I didn't know I had a disease that needed curing. Oh, but now guess what? You're healed. Uh, okay, I didn't know that, well, there seems like some sort of story here, I didn't know that I was missing something. 
And so if we're going to understand what Romans 3.21-26 through 26 is talking about, we have to understand the problem for which it is the solution. And Romans 3.21-26 through 26 is the good news, but we have to understand what the bad news is uh, before we get know what the good news is. And without knowing the bad news of the problem, it just makes us say, well, so what? Why do I care that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law? Why do I care that God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood? Why do I care that I can be justified by God's grace? So what? So we need to go back a little bit and to one verse that explains it all. Uh, Romans 1.18, if you want to write it down, you can turn back to it. Romans 1.18 says this. It says, For the wrath of God, Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so that gives us our problem. The wrath of God has been revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So the issue is that uh, God's wrath, and whenever we hear the word wrath, um, words that are close to it in synonym are like anger, uh, and you never think of God as like having a temper, like at any time, God could just like fly off the handle, like his emotions just kind of go up and down. God's described as slow to anger. It just, he's very uh, and, and self-controlled. Like God isn't just like, oh, he just is like any time he could just kind of boil over and be like, okay, like he's just up and down, like in his emotions, and he's just like I'm. He's uncontrolled. Like this is God's um, settled disposition and attitude towards all things evil all things that are corrupt, all things that are in rebellion and that are sinning and that are breaking his law. This is God's holiness and his justice saying, when laws are broken, when bad things are done, when evil things are done, when my um, laws are broken, I am against that. This is a good, this is God's holy holiness and justice and righteousness coming and standing against all things that are wrong. And so this is God expressing, his wrath is his expression against that. And so it's saying God, this is God's wrath, the wrath of God, his, uh, God being against all things that are breaking of his law, all things that are evil, all things that are sinful. It says ungodliness and unrighteousness. God, it's been, God has revealed that he is against those things. He's revealed that he's against that. So that's our problem is that uh, God has revealed that he's against people that are ungodly, people who have rejected him, and he's revealed that he is against people who are unrighteous, who are breaking his commandments, who are breaking his law, who are not living upright lives, who are not being righteous. And so then, that's a problem. Uh, that's the problem here. And then Paul goes on to explain in the following two chapters, you know, it's a, okay, he goes on and he talks about, uh, there's two sets of people basically in the world at this point. There's, uh, I mean, in, in the Jewish mindset, there's Jewish people, because uh, they're the nation of Israel, they're God's chosen people, and then there's non-Jewish people. And so he goes on and he says, of course, Jewish people, we see that the Gentile, the non-Jewish world, they're all living in sin. So he goes on and explains that like, God's wrath is revealed against them. We know that. But then, to their, the Jewish people's surprise, he goes and says, 
look, it's revealed against Jewish people too, because we've been living with God's laws, the the Ten Commandments and you know Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus and all these commandments that God gave us. We've been living with those, and so Jewish people a lot of times thought we got all these laws and we're keeping all these laws. But look, the people, the Gentile world who doesn't have who don't have all these laws, of course they're living in sin, and so God's wrath is going to be against them. And Paul, who's writing this letter, says, "Yeah, but look." We're not keeping them all either. If you guys are really honest with yourselves, none of us are keeping them either. We're not obeying all these laws. And so in the end he says, uh, there's no distinction between Jews and Gentiles. All of us are failing to keep it. And so if you skip forward to uh, chapter 3, 9 through 11, he says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, Greeks is another word that he uses for Gentiles or non-Jewish people, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. And then skip to chapter 3, verse 20. For by works of law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And the word justified... If you were in, if you're in our courts today, uh, the judge, you know, bangs a little gavel and says, you know, guilty or not guilty. And in the court in those days, it was either they uh, justified you, which is to declare you uh, righteous, which would be mean to declare you innocent, or they condemned you to declare you guilty. And so he says, by keeping the law, no one's going to walk out of God's law court and God's going to say, justified, you are righteous. And everyone's going to walk out of God's law card and be declared condemned, guilty. So he says, by keeping the law, if you're trying to keep the law, no one's going to walk out and be declared righteous. And so that's our problem. In Romans 3.23, our passage for today, in the middle of it, verse 23 says, All have sinned. This is a simple summary. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That this is God's holy character, the glory of God, God's holy character, His goodness, His righteousness, His holiness, His justice. That if that's what we're comparing ourselves to, all have fallen short, all have sinned, without exception. That's the problem that we all have. And so, then we come uh, to our passage, is that if you want to think about this, a ladder. Is that we all fall short, and it doesn't matter how far you've climbed up it. If that's the top, that's the righteous, that's the glory of God. It's like that's where we're supposed to reach to. If somebody's like, "Yeah, I made it this far," you still fall short. And then, wouldn't it be cool if I was sitting up on top of here preaching from it? Probably not. You guys would all be, you guys would all go home and need like therapy because you're so anxious. <laughs> but it's like, okay, it's like, well, I've made it this far, and of course I'm terrible. But then the next person is like up here and they're like comparing themselves to other people it's like well at least I'm not as bad as them but it's like you still fall short like this is the glory of God and we've all fallen short it's like but I'm not as bad as them you still fall short it doesn't matter everyone falls short of the glory of God and so that's our problem we have this gap between this is where I am and this is where you're supposed to be we've all sinned and fallen short everyone falls short of the glory of God there's a gap between where we are and where we're supposed to be no one's kept all the laws and climbed the ladder. And so what do we do with this? How do, how do we respond to this feeling that we've fallen short? What's the fruit we see in our lives? And so if we're going through the tree that we look at it, you know, this law is built into our consciences. We're wired to ask, how am I doing? And we all feel like, I mean, if people 
our people, human beings are built with a conscience, like to ask, how am I doing? We kind of feel this ladder in front of us, and however we're doing it, we're like, well, how am I doing? Am I a good person? Am I a bad person? All cultures have kind of figured out a way to look after this. We look for places to measure our righteousness, and people can feel they've fallen short. Everyone can. And what do we? The question is, what do people do with this feeling? And we we show the bad, we hide the bad, or we show the good, we hide the bad, we compare with people, we blame others for what's gone wrong, and we hope in the end. Some people hope in the end that the good's going to outweigh the bad. And you've maybe heard people say things. Well, if I ever entered a church building, like God would just strike me dead with lightning. I can never come in. Like and people feel like. Things are not right with me. Things are not the way they're supposed to be with me. And we have this biting, gnawing, nagging feeling that all is not right with the world. All is not how it's supposed to be in the world. And then if people look deeper, they just, you know, all isn't right with me and how it's supposed to be with me. I'm falling short. I'm not the mom I should be. I'm not the dad I should be. I'm not the daughter or son I should be. I'm not the friend I should have been. And people feel that, that they aren't that the way they're supposed to be. And so what do people do when they fall short? And what are the fruits in their lives? We can deny it. We can blame blame someone else. It's not their. It's not our fault. We hide. We we kind of avoid and hope that God won't find us. We run. We compare. At least I'm not as bad as them. We we hope the good's gonna outweigh the bad, or we lawyer up. You know, we justify and defend. Like we become our own like defense lawyer. I'm gonna justify and defend until I can get off the hook. And so, what does this say about who we are? What do we what do we kind of tell ourselves? We try to say, well, it wasn't that bad. I'm not really that bad. What's the big deal? Or we tell ourselves, I'll do better next time. Or we say, what's the use? I'm hopeless. What's the use trying anymore? Or maybe we finally say, like, well, I need help, and then we look for help in a whole bunch of places. Or we tell, or when we fall short, we say, we kind of beat ourselves up, like, you're so stupid. You're, you're just worthless. You can't do anything right. And we kind of, like, self-punish. And how we deal with our feeling that we've fallen short shows what we believe about God. People who run from God, some people try to say, well, God doesn't really exist. That feeling inside of you, just kind of don't worry about it. Or maybe, like, do the best you can, but when you die, you're just, you're just kind of gone. And so we're just going to die and nothing's going to happen. There's not going to be any lasting consequences. Some people say, if God's loving, he's go- he has to forgive me. And those uh, feelings of conscience are uh, maybe a product of, you know, evolution and, you know, we just kind of evolved and we, that loving each other, that's just something that is good for us to do as in the whole uh, evolutionary process. So, you know, that's just something we're doing. And some people say he has bigger things to worry about than micromanaging our lives and caring about the bad things we do. And so he's not worried about it. It's just he's got bigger things to do. And some people say, well, he has standards that I can meet. So people are working really hard, like, I just need, if I work hard enough, I can get, I can just meet all of his standards. Or some people say, he has set impossible standards that I can never meet, and he's going to punish me if I don't meet him. Like, these are just impossible standards. Like, what a jerk. God is a jerk. Or some people, they, they're just hiding from their whole lives. He's a God that I can avoid. Or some people think he's a God who's going to look at the good and the bad I've done and see which one weighs the most. And all of these are, are distortions of God, and they're really weak gods. We don't want the God that is like any of these pictures. We wouldn't want this kind of God running the world. And none of them is uh, a good picture of what the God of the Bible is. And so when we look at Romans 3, 21 through 26, we see a much better picture of God. And so in verse uh, 21 
tells us, firstly, that uh, the law, the Old Testament, uh, anticipated Jesus' coming. Uh, It says this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So something, the, the law in the Old Testament is good and right and holy, but the law cannot help you become righteous. I've shared this illustration before that the law and like God's commands, any command God gives, uh, they're good and they're right and they're holy. But just like a train uh, sitting on railroad tracks, the, the railroad tracks uh, are good and right. And they're telling the train the right direction to go, but they don't give the train any power to go down the railroad tracks. They just tell the train the right direction to go. And God's laws and commands, they tell us the right direction to go, but the laws and commands don't give us any power to actually go down that direction. And so if you look in the New Testament, that's always what the teaching is in the Bible, that Paul, whenever he's talking about the law, he's saying God's hands are good and right and holy, but they can't give you the power to go down, to obey them. All they can tell you is point out the sin that is there. And so we've been given something even better. We've been given Jesus and the Holy Spirit now. And so they give you no power. In verse 20 we saw, by the law comes knowledge of sin. And what the law does, it measures how far we've fallen short of God's glory. So you're keeping these laws. You know, if you think about breaking a law today, when you break, if you break the speed limit and you have to, like, show up in court or something, I actually don't know what things make you have to show up in court. Uh, but it's a pass-fail. The law only measures the laws you've broken. If you get caught speeding, uh, the police officer isn't, officer isn't going to be like, well... Let me take into account all the laws you've kept today. Or if you show up in court, it's like, let me take into account all the laws you've kept today in your life. Like you murdered somebody, but you know what? Uh, You've kept a lot of laws in your life. And those kind of outweigh all those good things you've done, outweigh this bad thing you've done. And so, you know, you get off the hook for this one. That's not how laws work. Laws only measure what you've broken. They don't measure the laws you've kept. And that's how God's law works too. And even the laws we have kept, when we're saying, like, God, uh, you know what? I'm going to do this on my own. I'm going to get right with you on my own. Even the laws we're keeping when we're saying that is breaking, is disobedience to God. Because God says, you need me to be right with me. And when we're saying, God, I'm going to be right with you on my own by keeping your laws, we're disobeying God. So even if we're like, I'm climbing this ladder on my own, God, to be right with you, every single law we kept, however far we got, is just disobedient. All of those aren't even getting close to God because all of those are done in disobedience to Him because all of those are just saying, like, I'm, gonna, I'm doing this on my own, God, without you. When He said, you need to do it all with me. And so even us trying to climb a ladder and say, like, but God, look how much I've done. Can't you count some of those? He said, yeah, but all of those you did in disobedience to me because you weren't relying on me. So it's even everything we try to bring to Him is just more of our falling short and saying we're trying to live life apart from him. By works of the law, no one will be righteous in his sight. But Paul is saying, but look, it's not like the law was without witness to God's grace and mercy, or without witness to Christ. Uh, Because built into God's laws was his mercy and grace. And so if you're reading the Old Testament law, you have all these systems. God built uh, a tabernacle, which is like a tent, uh, and then the temple, and he wanted to dwell with his people. He wanted to be close with his people. And then surrounding that was the system of priests 
and sacrifices by which the people were cleansed of their sins. So you had these priests, which were mediators. They're people that uh, were allowing the people to connect with God and God to the people. And then people, when they sinned, they would bring a sacrifice to the priest, and the sacrifice had to be spotless, without blemish. It had to be perfect. This perfect uh, sacrifice had to be brought to them. And when they brought it before the priest, uh, they would put their hand on its head, and they would like confess their sins over it. And then it would get killed. And then it would get burned on the altar so that now a holy, they could be, this holy God could be dwelling in their presence. And so what was it doing? Their sins were being put on the sacrifice. It was, and then it was dying in their place so they could be living in the presence of a holy God. And so Paul's saying, look, the, the law and the prophets bear witness to this righteousness that you were going to get that was out that wasn't didn't come from obeying the law. It was coming from this sacrifice that was going to be die in your place. And so he's saying, look, it was being pointed to all along. And so don't ever let anybody tell you that, oh, in the Old Testament, God made people earn their salvation. He was just kind of angry and grumpy. And now in the New Testament, we have a God of love and mercy and grace. Salvation has always been by grace through faith. And in the Old Testament, Christ just hadn't come yet. But all the things that were happening in the Old Testament were pointing forward to him. But salvation has always been by grace through faith. And then in Romans, and then we move forward. Okay, what's he saying here? So the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Then verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what problem does every person on the planet have in common? He says there is no distinction, no distinction between any person of whatever color, race, ethnicity, um, political allegiance, nationality, whatever it is, there's no distinction between people. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter how nice or good somebody looks on the outside. It doesn't matter how dirty or horrible or messed up somebody looks on the outside. The, there's no difference between those two people. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Somebody may look like, wow, they've really messed up their life. They, don't, they haven't even started climbing the ladder. And there might be somebody who's like, wow, look, they've given so much money to charity. Like, look on the outside. They look like, man, they're doing pretty good with God. No distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. doesn't matter how far they are up. Everyone, or how far they look like they're up. Everyone falls short on the ladder. And sometimes we've uh, used, in the campus ministry, we were part of crew, we would talk about, if we're all trying to jump across the Grand Canyon, some of us may jump a little further, but we're all going to fall into the Grand Canyon, right? None of us are going to make it across it. And without Jesus, we all fall short. And thus we stand under the wrath of God. But then also, he says, what is the solution for everyone? All fall short. There's two alls in these two verses. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then back up to ver further in verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. All have fallen short, no matter who you are. But it doesn't matter how messed up you are, how bad you are that you can be through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. 
doesn't matter. Without distinction, for all who believe, everybody can be righteous before God without distinction. Well, how can this be? Verses 24 through 25. So all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, verse 24, and are justified, how? By his grace, as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And so this is where we get to the... uh, how do we solve this problem that God's wrath has been revealed against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness? How have we solved, where is that, how do we get rid of this wrath problem that we are ungodly, we're unrighteous, we've broken God's commands, we've uh, not been godly people, we haven't had a good relationship with him, we've been unrighteous, even on our best days, we are still not having the best relationship with him. Propitiation, that word means uh, something that takes away what wrath, something that is pacifies wrath, and sometimes I like to think of you know the word pacify, uh, a pacifier is put in a baby's mouth. You know when babies are kind of mad. Uh, I don't know, maybe you don't like to think of a baby being mad, but it's, you know like they're kind of like screaming or whatever, and it's like okay, a pacifier is like soothes them, pacifies them, and maybe you don't like being like I don't want to think about God as an angry baby. It's just kind of a an, you know, a common word we use is pacifier. Just helps me think of like a, a propitiation pacifies God's wrath. It's like, okay, God has wrath. Uh, it's not like he's this angry baby, but it's like God has this, uh, this his settled attitude and disposition towards all things evil and sinful and ungodly and unrighteous. And so a propitiation takes away uh, that because it pays for the penalty of it is that God's law has been broken. And so something has to be done about that. There's a penalty for breaking God's law. And God is like, okay, I am against whoever has broken that. And who's going to pay this penalty? There's something has to be done here. A propitiation is what pays for that in the lawbreaker's place. And so what we're told here is that Jesus paid for it. Jesus comes in as a substitute. It's like, okay, the sinner is going to pay for it unless there's a propitiation to, to pay for it in our place. And so Jesus comes in, and he becomes a propitiation to take away the wrath. And so, okay, it's been paid for. The penalty's been paid. And so now we no longer stand under God's wrath. There's no longer hostility. He's no longer against us. Now he can be for us because it's been paid for. And so that's just like the Old Testament sacrifices. They brought the sacrifice. It was spotless. It was blameless. Jesus also lived a perfect life, a sinless life, and he had to in order to be a substitute in our place. Because if Jesus had sin, he could not be a substitute in our place. Because then he's just dying for the penalty of his sin. If Jesus was not sinless, well then he deserved to die on the cross. He deserved God's wrath, so he can't be a substitute in our place. And so he comes, and he's the perfect spotless lamb who dies in our place, and he takes the penalty that we deserve for our sin. And so now we don't have, we don't stand under God's wrath anymore. And then continuing in verse 25, he says this, where that sentence begins. Now what was this, this taking of the propitiation? This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just 
and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so first, it was Jesus taking the penalty for our sin, God's wrath and the, the punishment for our sin, was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And so, before Jesus came, it's saying that God didn't pay for the penalty of those sins. You're like, wait, what does that mean? In other words, it's saying that people were being forgiven of their sins before Jesus came. By grace, through faith, people were being saved. People in Israel, or people who uh, were Gentiles, like people like Rahab who came to faith, or people um, that just were not Jewish people, were putting their faith in God, and by grace through faith, they're being saved. And this is saying, like, well, okay, they're using these Old Testament sacrifices, the blood of goats and the blood of bulls and the blood of rams and sheep, which the book of Hebrews talks about, but how can a sheep really pay for my sins? It's an animal. How can it be my representative? How can it be my substitute? And so it's saying God was forgiving those people as he was accepting you know, these sacrifices, but those really couldn't pay for their sins. And so God, in his patience and forbearance, was passing over their sins as he knew he was going to actually pay for them in the cross of Christ. And so this was to show his righteousness. Like, I'm going to do this the right way, and now I'm showing my righteousness. I've paid for them truly in the cross of Christ. Because sheep and goats and bulls and rams, those can't pay for sins. Jesus paid for it. So now I've paid for all of those past sins in the cross of Christ, and I'm paying for all of the future sins of anybody who, who's by grace through faith in Christ alone is saved in the cross of Jesus. And then he's also saying, verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what does this mean? His righteousness at the present time why would his righteousness be called into question at the present time? And it, you know, there's this really powerful line in the next chapter, in verse 5. Chapter 4, verse 5. And to the one who does not work but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly. Those two words should never be together. God, the one who justifies the ungodly, meaning he declares righteous the ungodly. He declares righteous the unrighteous. God declares innocent the guilty. God lets the guilty go away unpunished. God says, you've done all these things. You've done all these things wrong. You've broken the law. You've not lived an innocent life. You're a criminal. But you're innocent. But you're righteous. Go free. No punishment. No condemnation. You don't have to serve a sentence. Have a nice day. Actually, I love you. Uh, I'm going to give you everything that you could ever dream of. You can come live with me in my presence, and it's going to be awesome. Wait, what? What's going on here? What? These, this shouldn't happen. What kind of judge is this? Like, this should never happen. Like, if you had somebody do something... You know, think about the, all the things we've done, all the laws we've broken. If somebody broke a law... I mean, you can think of the most horrible things, like if somebody broke into your house and stole your stuff or, like, hurt one of your family members, you're like, you would be outraged if somebody got away with that. But at the same time, if you think about, you know, just the littlest things, like somebody doing something, I mean, uh, we get outraged. Like, somebody should have to do, this person should have to pay for the wrong they've done. And God, like, just lets us off. And we should be outraged at that. And 
this is God's justice problem, God justifying the unrighteous and the ungodly. And often we, our modern day, our moral dilemma, how we ask it is, uh, how could a loving God send people to hell? That's usually how we ask it. How could a loving God ever send anyone to hell? That's like our moral dilemma. How do we solve this? God, you're so loving and gracious. How could you ever send anybody to hell? And this sentence is telling us that wasn't the Bible's moral dilemma. That wasn't God's moral dilemma. God's moral dilemma is how can a holy and just God justify the ungodly? How can God say that I am righteous even though I'm not? I'm not righteous. So how can God, when I'm standing in his court, hit down his gavel and say, you're righteous and let me go free. You're innocent. How can he tell me I'm innocent when I've broken so many of his laws? How can he do that and overlook that? How can God declare the guilty innocent? How can God pardon sinners? We deserve condemnation. And the way he can do that is because Jesus has paid for it. Jesus has stood in our place and he's paid for it all is that somebody else had to pay for it, that jesus uh, paid for it in our place that's how that's what it's saying here how can god both be just still be called righteous and just and be the justifier of those who believe in jesus how can god declare the guilty innocent and still be called righteous it's because he's paid for the, our penalty that we deserve in jesus that somebody else took his took our place and paid for it that's how that's what this passage is saying is that uh, God has done it himself. And it's not like, oh, okay, like, um, we have an angry, God the Father is angry, and uh, Jesus is like, no, no, Dad, they're, you know, they're really great. Let me to it instead. No, this is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and their plan of salvation, and this is how they enacted. Like, God is wanting to save us. God the Father is wanting to save us, and this is God the Son enacting, demonstrating the Father's plan and the Father's love. And so when we think about, uh, in the same way, who is God, when we look at this passage, it tells us, okay, God is gracious because uh, we are justified, verse 24, by his grace as a gift that's given to us. At the same time, God is righteous and just. And so at the cross we see the intersection of both those things, that God's justice is satisfied by Jesus paying for it, and he's righteous and holy. This is all of God's righteousness and justice and holiness coming and being paid for and satisfied in Jesus paying for our sin. And it's also God's grace in that he is paying for it himself. At the cost of himself, he is paying for our sin, meeting at the cross. And so we see, what does God do? Because he's both gracious and righteous and just and holy. He puts forward Jesus as a propitiation to satisfy. In grace, he satisfies his justice and righteousness and holiness himself on our behalf. He justifies us by his grace. And so the, a big idea, if you want to kind of put it down in what God does, or what Jesus does, uh, it's Jesus died in our place to save us from the penalty of sin. Jesus died in our place to save us from the penalty of sin. Jesus died in our place to save us from the penalty of sin. It's important to recognize that he died in our place, that he's our substitute. He represents us as fully human, and he died in our place to save us from the penalty of sin. He fulfills what God's law anticipated. He satisfies what God's holiness requires. 
And he demonstrates that God's just and holy and righteous, that the law anticipated what he was going to do, he satisfies what God's holiness requires, and then he demonstrates that God is just and righteous and holy, and he puts all of his grace on display. And when we think about what's our biggest problem in life, you know, oh, I have so many problems. Our biggest problem in life is that we've stood under the wrath of God, and we couldn't get out from under it ourselves, and that biggest problem has been solved. And what's the worst news you could ever hear? It's not that uh, of any of the other horrible things in this earthly life that we could think of. It's that uh, you are a sinner in underneath the holy wrath of God. And that has been taken care of. Because the worst news you can hear is that because of your sin, God is against you. But now the best news we can hear is that uh, because of Jesus, God is no longer against you. He's now for you. Jesus paid for what our sins deserve. Our sin deserves condemnation. And Christ pays for our justification process of declaring us righteous and the and our sin deserves wrath and christ pays for propitiation which is the taking away of that wrath and our sin deserves alienation separation from god and christ pays for reconciliation bringing us together our forgiveness and what is the solution to the wrath of god against the ungodliness and righteousness of all people and how can god justify ungodly unrighteous people and still be considered just and the answer is to both is that Jesus pays. That's how he takes away our wrath, and that's how he stays righteous and just. He pays for it. And so when we think of who am I and who are we, we can just say, I am someone who falls short. We just have to accept that. I am someone who falls short, but who is loved anyway. When we trust in Jesus, we can say, I am someone who falls short, but who is loved anyway. One of our greatest fears as people, is to be known and not loved. It's for people to know the true us, the real us, to know warts and all, to know us, to be known and not loved. Is that if I'm vulnerable and if I really make myself known and know people to see, you know, my sin and my weakness or and what I have going on in my life and underneath it, and then they could reject me to be known and not loved. And though we fall short every day, our standing with God remains unchanged. And I drew this, we're going to use this, um, these boxes for the next three messages. Is that this is our standing with God. And this is our obedience. And so our standing with God, he's already, if we've been saved from the penalty of our sin, we've been declared righteous and so whoop, it's full we're always righteous we've been justified we have been saved we have been declared righteous so our standing with god is always that you are safe with me i am for you i don't see you as a guilty condemned sinner there's no therefore no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus so this our standing and our status with god does not go up and down based on how well we are obeying him. So if this is your obedience chart of like, oh, this is how high up I got on the ladder today, this is how high up I got on the ladder today, this is how far I... We are always falling short, and we think like, man, this is that gap of how high I got up on the ladder. Like, okay, today I only made it this far, so I fell short, and now, okay, tomorrow I've got to do... What's God going to do with that gap? It's already been filled. You don't have to fill it. You don't have to be like, I need to fill that in order for God to be for me, or for God to love me, or for him to be okay with me. 
We don't have to fill that gap. I'm someone who falls short, but who is loved anyway. We don't need to deny we fall short. We don't need to hide it or cover it. We don't need to try to close the gap. And nothing is left unpaid for. There's nothing that God will discover about us that has not been paid for by Jesus. And he paid it all. And in this relationship, God makes it so we can't mess it up. If you, The only way we can mess it up is if we say, I don't want it. I don't want this relationship with you. That's the only way we can mess it up. If we say, God, I want to be in this relationship with you, we can't mess it up. Even when everything else is going bad in life and we've done everything bad, we can know that we're good with God, that he's done, he has no reason to be against us. We can never fill in the gaps ourselves. We can never fill in how we've fallen short ourselves. There isn't a gap we have to fill. The only way we can mess it up is if we say, God, I don't want this relationship anymore, and we walk away. There's nothing more to do. There isn't anything we can do to increase or decrease our position with God. And our relationship with Him, a relationship with a person is only as good as the two people's commitment to it. And God has already said, like, uh, I know you're going to stink at this. You know, when we get into a relationship with God, it's not like, you know, on the wedding day when people are, like, making their vows. Everything's just all nice and sparkly. You know, it's kind of like the sun shines down. And it's like, this is going to be great. And God's like, on the wedding day, he's like, I know you're going to stink at this. You know, the wedding day is like a bloody cross with God. He's like, I know how bad you're going to be at this, and I'm, I've already paid for how bad you're going to be at this. Like, God, I already know every bad thing you're going to do in this relationship. And I'm showing you how committed I am to it by paying in advance for all of it. It's like a prepaid, you know, like phone card. It's like, God's like, I'm not going to pay for your sin along the way. I'm just going to prepay for how bad you're going to be at this relationship. The whole, the gap is already filled, and your standing with me isn't going to change. Like, I am, that's how committed I am to this. You can't mess this up. I'm going to be for you the whole way, and that is how much he shows that he's in it. And we think, like, isn't he going to get tired of how much I'm going to fail? Is he going to get fed up with how lousy I am at loving him? Is he going to grow weary of me telling him the same thing over and over again of how bad I am? And he's just going to one day say, I'm out? No, he's already filled in the gap. He's paid for it. He paid for all of our sins on the cross. So what kind of people would this make us into? What kind of fruit would this make in our lives? And we would become a, a church community, and as individuals... To other people, we would become a people where uh, it's safe to fall short with us, because we know we've fallen short. It's like no matter how uh, high we up or on the ladder, and you know we can kind of place expectations, and it's like, well, I'm at, I'm at rung two, and so we kind of are afraid of people that are the next step up or a couple steps up, like, ooh, I'm a, I'm intimidated by them, and then we kind of like, ooh, I kind of look, I like hanging around the people who are down a rung than me because I kind of look down on them. they kind of like people I can help. They're like people that I feel safer around them because they're like, you know, I can tell them what to do and help them. I don't like hanging around people that are above me. But we just become people who are like, I already know I fall short, and I guess what, I already know you're going to fall short. And so we become safe people for people that are falling short. And we all can say like, you know, guess what, guys? We're all falling short, and we don't have to put on a show for each other. And we, And when people come to us and... They're you know, afraid and saying, I'm always falling short and I'm always going to. And we can just be like, yeah, I know. Yeah, we know you're going to. And guess what? We all are too. And then we can show grace and love to one another. And when we're being, when people are telling us, like, 
hey, like, you kind of fell short there. I mean, we probably aren't going to use that language, but when people are pointing out to us, like, this is something, like, you messed up in or pointing out our sin or something we didn't do right, we don't need to become our own lawyer when people see us fall short, you know, defending ourselves and justifying ourselves. But we're okay with falling short because, you know what, we don't need to fill in the gap. It's like God's filled it in. Like, yeah, I know I sin, and God's filled it in. We become safe people um, to those around us as a church, our spouses, kids, um, co-workers, neighbors, and that becomes our witness to other people. And it's more powerful than uh, uh, where we connect our lives um, with our message as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we don't have to uh, fill in the gap ourselves. That we don't have to impress you or impress each other or impress those around us. Would you help us to live in the freedom that you've justified us and declared us righteous in your sight. It's in your son's name we pray. <coughs> Amen.